This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast, Clothed by Fly Racing. And gents, did you know that Renthal not only have a selection of carefully crafted handlebars for your road bike, used by the likes of Jonathan Ray and Alex Lowe's in World Superbike, so they must be good, but also street grips. From comfort to durability to grip diameter options, Renthal streets have a grip for everybody. My name is Adam Wheeler. I'm joined by the man with the hat, Mr. David Emmett. He of deep analysis on motomatters.com. Read it, sign up to exclusive content from Patreon. Uh, I believe you're going to be having some more interviews over the next couple of weeks, Dave. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. I've got a whole bunch ready to go. Well, ready for me to type up if I ever find a spare moment. And um, I, uh, yeah, some very good ones with Shuan Mir and with um, Santi Hernandez. So, yeah, it's, uh, they were really interesting conversations. As per usual, also on the podcast, we have the baritone of bike broadcasting and exquisite writer for hire, not to mention on-track off-road digital magazine long-term MotoGP columnist, Mr. Neil Morrison. Why are you chuckling, Neil? I'm trying to trying to big you up. Yeah, yes, exactly. Normally, you uh, say things that are uh, not nice about me, but that was probably the nicest thing you've ever said. Yeah, I know uh, my disparaging comments are not that bad. Come on. Um, gentlemen, are we both are we both inflated on on Portuguese uh, pastiz de Belém cakes? Are you ready to change to some tapas? There really were an awful lot of uh, uh, cakes in the press room. Uh, they did put uh, uh, they love their biscuits and their sweet things there. So um, yeah, I will. I'm gonna have to move to something a little bit more solid. I mean, I think it's more uh, fresh fish that we've been dining off for the last couple of days. Uh, yeah, seafood is pretty. Pretty spicy around this uh, these parts of the Algarve, so um, I tried to lay off the cakes as much as possible and uh, keep it principally to uh, to uh, salty things. But yeah, the, the the fish down here absolutely get on it. What a hardship, Neil! I hope you didn't get any little bones stuck in your craw. That would have been uh, something of a disaster. But um, let's talk about the fourth Grand Prix of the well, a full visit, I should say, to the Algarve International Circuit. Uh, we didn't get very lucky with the weather, did we? But then Fabio Quartararo, for the first time since Silverstone 2021, taking victory on the Monster Energy Yamaha. Uh, first podium of the season was Johan Zarco as well. Uh, was that quite timely, gentlemen? Actually, was he on the podium in Qatar? He was on the podium in Indo- Indonesia. Indonesia, right. Okay. So there we go. Uh, as usual, the um, first class research kicking in very early on the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, but, you know, does it also say something for Joe Zarko that I don't remember him being on the podium so far this season? Um, is he going to be a bit of a sleeper dark horse as usual? Uh, it was the second top three for Alessio Spargaro, um, who went from being world championship leader to, uh, let's say, a little bit more of mid top 10 obscurity back to the top three so another trophy the second one in as many well five rounds for the um the how can we describe him the exaggerated spaniard uh you know who does like to harp on slightly doesn't he um we've had some problematic areas through turns one two and three uh of course around the track we'll get through those in a minute not only crashes in motor gp but also in motor two but first of all gents before we get into any more talking points your moments the weekend uh neil what was the f- you know the first thing that, that stood out for you Hey, the first thing that stood out ad was probably the Model 2 race and that really terrifying 11-rider crash that we had, I think, nine laps into the race. Um, so, yeah, my moment was basically when I realized, and when we all realized, that uh, there were no serious injuries there. Um, Aaron Kinnett um, obviously fractured, I think, the radius bone in his right arm um, and I think a little finger as well. Uh, his participation in Hareth is in some doubt. I think Sam Lowe's took a real big whack to his back elbow and arm and um, is definitely feeling less than 100% after that Um, but in the grand scheme of things it could have been really so much worse Um, I think it was pretty terrifying for everyone watching Um, bikes going everywhere Uh, Lowe's in particular I think was on course to get uh, sandwiched between a stationary bike and a bike traveling at 70 miles an hour 80 miles an hour Um, thankfully managed to get pushed out of the way of that um, and a few riders basically standing getting up in the gravel um, didn't get collected by the uh, the sort of bikes and the madness coming coming forth so um, yeah really scary moment another one of those moments where you feel that we got away with one you know because uh, I think watching that live the immediate reaction was something really serious has happened so uh, 
thankfully, no huge, serious, life-threatening injuries. You know, just the, the broken arm for his net, which is obviously obviously terrible for his uh, championship challenge. But yeah, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, scary stuff. Um, actually, our Spanish colleague, um, Chechu Lazaro, uh, tweeted this morning that Kanet's already had surgery and is actually you know, putting one eye on participation in Jerez next weekend, which should be quite staggering, really, considering not only the violence of the crash and, and the injury, but the fact that he can get fit again to consider racing in Moto2 once more. Uh, props to Chechu, by the way, who's recovering from a broken collarbone, uh, and he's got much more respect for me because he sustained the injury playing football. So good lad. Uh, worth pointing out that Canet's injury is a fractured radius. So that's the basically the bottom of the bone which connects to your hand. Uh, it's a wrist injury. It's quite common. It's quite easy to fix. This is not going to be a repeat of Mark Marquez in Jerez 2020. And it was, um, I guess, a quick uh, synopsis or a summary of, of, of the Model 2 incident. I mean, I saw a lot of people on Twitter yesterday um, basically saying that red flags should have maybe come out a little bit earlier. Um, there were... Uh, I guess some riders, I think Tony Arbolino, Sam Lowe's, they both felt that the race probably should have been stopped one or two laps before um, the uh, the incident occurred on lap nine. Um, but just looking at looking at the times and, and hearing what some of the riders were saying, I mean, it, it did seem like a very sudden um, event, you know, like the, the basically, I think Dave and I were talking about this yesterday. He noted that Kinnett had just done his personal best lap uh, sector time in sector one, the previous lap. Um, and I think it was Celestino Vietti was saying that turn one on lap nine when they all crashed, everything was cool. Absolutely no warning whatsoever. So it does seem that um, there was just a very sudden bit of rainfall, a very sudden shower, and it, um, it caught. I mean, it caught almost everyone out. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if we can really um, lay the blame at uh, race direction for um, being a little slow uh, with bringing the red flags out. I think uh, my moment of the weekend was actually in a similar area of the track and sorry to point towards a moment of misfortune, but it was the Jack Miller and Joan Mir takeout, I guess. Um, similarities to, I mean, we've seen it on a number of occasions, haven't we? Maybe the incident that most springs to mind for me is Valentino Rossi and Casey Stoner at Jerez. Okay, it wasn't soaking wet conditions that year but um you know there was little Mir could do even though he was already very hot into turn one I mean you can see just from the way he was breaking late and released turning into the curve and then Miller I think he explained he hit maybe a possibly a damp patch because he was slightly offline going for the inside of the of the corner and um it was just it was initially a relief to see they were both okay but also quite amusing when Joran Mir gave him the slow golf clap uh looked like he was going over to remonstrate with him saw that Miller actually might be hurt so there was like a, a kind of a mini cycle of emotions there from rage to uh, disappointment to concern. It was um, it was almost amusing in that respect. But, uh, uh, you know, big shame for Joan Mir. Um, also, you know, that consistency that we've spoken about over the, the, the races so far this season. And, and also Jack Miller, who was again warming up, saying he'd been conserving his tires. He was building up his pace. So he was really getting into the race, looked a surefire bet for a podium finish and then it ended up in the rather large chunks of gravel which was another little strange character of the Grand Prix weekend I'm sure we can talk about that a little bit later Dave what stood out for you from the Grand Prix what stood out for me I think was the um the, the fact that Fabio Quartararo was able to overtake Juan Mir uh, on the straight sort of towards the end of the straight um Obviously, we've heard a lot about the top speed of the Yamaha. Um, Fabio is completely convinced that the bike isn't fast enough and, you know, the speed charts would tend to agree with him. Um, the, I mean, what it really showed is that top speed doesn't always matter if you can compensate in other areas because the way that Fabio did it was he was carrying so much speed down that fantastic last corner, down the hill um, and then up and over the crest uh, that he was coming out there much, much faster. Juan Mir by that time was starting to struggle with his front tyre so he couldn't carry the same sort of speed through that corner uh, and the way he came past there and flew past, it just showed that when everything is right with the Yamaha, it's you know, still a very competitive bike as long as Fabio it's Fabio Quattararo who's on board and, and, and riding it well Dave let's get into that talking point then because Yamaha are in a strange situation again I mean I actually put them down as my winners from the weekend because of the situation with Quattararo and it seems if they can you know tie him to another contract then they're going to be in good shape 
But their situation continues to be bizarre. It's almost as if the season would be a complete disaster if it wasn't for one individual and a very mature approach he has to, to the racing season. I mean, how did you see things after especially talking to the likes of Andrea Davizioso and Darren Binder and also Frankie Morbidelli, who, you know, it just seems a little bit more lost every Grand Prix that we go on in the season? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of changes for, for Morbidelli also because he has a new crew chief, uh, he has a new crew, it's all been shifted around a little bit. Um, uh, his crew chief is also completely new to crew, crew chiefing, he's a very, very experienced uh, suspension engineer um, who, I, I mean, he is genuinely one of the very best pe uh, sort of suspension people in the paddock. Uh, but crew chiefing is a little bit different. It takes a little bit of a, uh, it, it's a different role. Um, that bike is difficult. All of the Yamaha riders, except for uh, Fabio, says the biggest problem is grip. Uh, Andre Dovizioso was explaining really well about it, saying basically right on the edge of the tire, just as you come out of, you know, past the apex and you start to crack the throttle. If you don't do that really super, super smoothly, the rear starts to slide. And once the rear starts to slide, it doesn't come back again. Uh, 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 until you sort of get back uh, uh, get back on again um, uh, uh, well, until you get the bike completely upright so the, the, the slide starts right on the edge of the tyre and then it sort of uh, it just carries on and that's what's been the real difficulty for uh, according to um, uh, according to Dovicioso, also according to Morbidelli, you know, it really is a, a grip, a grip problem. Not according to, um, Fabio. Fabio says, look, I just need top speed. More grip is always nice, but top speed is where I'm getting killed because he, he says, whenever there's a bike in front of you, you can't make, you, you can't use that strength of the Yamaha, the corner speed and make the, the, you know, the big round sweeping corners. Um, if others are doing big sort of, uh, V corners, then there's just no room for you to go underneath. One interesting point, which I thought he said is, um, Mark Marquez, it was never going to be a problem with Mark Marquez because Mark Marquez is such a late breaker, um, that he leaves enough room for uh, Quattararo to keep carrying the corner speed sort of thing. But it's especially the Ducatis, which are breaking a little bit earlier, and they're just, you know, holding up the Yamaha. They're, get, they're, they're getting in the way. So it's um, it's a bit of a difficult situation for Yamaha right now. Right now, there is one person who is really good. I mean, the, the second Yamaha across the line was Andrea Dovicioso, 29 seconds uh, uh, behind the winner on the same bike. Um, Franco even further back. It's, um, you know, we all know that Fabio is looking at his uh, contract. He's asking for a loss of money. And, you know, frankly, whatever they're paying him, they need to pay him. It's as simple as that. There's no one else can, can currently uh, win on that bike. Um, he was also quite, quite funny in the press, uh, in the press conference when he was asked, you know, a race like that, does he change your attitude towards your contract? And he said, no. And then he said, I'm in kidney mode, which um, uh, even as someone who doesn't watch F1, thought was, I thought was quite funny. Yeah, you'd think uh, you could, that was an opportunity to throw in some sort of quip about you adding another zero onto the contract or whatever else. Uh, that would have been quite illuminating. But I think Fabio's a little bit more discreet and modest than that. Um, Dave, you know, also Neil... I mean, the, the priority for Yamaha is clear, isn't it? I mean, they know what they need to do. They need more horses coming from the engine. But... Do you think the manufacturer is in a, almost like a Honda situation now where they have one guy who's making the package work? So how much do you alter and try and change it? And, and what possibilities do you have to change for your other riders? I mean, it was a similar situation that we saw a couple of years ago with Mark Marquez. Um, you know, you had the likes of Takanakagami, Jorge Lorenzo, Cal Crutchlow, these riders complaining about front end feel, um, you know, really struggling with, with the RCV. And, you know, and we'll talk about Honda a little bit later in the pod, but you know, a Yamaha in a similar boat now, is, is that the feeling now? I mean, do you get that vibe? Yeah, I do get that vibe. And it is a, it's a strange situation for Yamaha. I mean, we've had right the way through history periods where one rider and only one rider has really been able to get the very best out of the Honda. Normally his name is Mark Marquez, maybe Casey Stoner in, in years gone by as well. Um, but you look at, at MotoGP history and Yamaha has had this reputation of being the bike that anyone can jump on and be relatively quick fairly straight away. I mean, you think back to the time when Cal Crutchlow and Andrea Davizioso were scoring podiums on it. They had pretty different riding styles to what the conventional Jorge Lorenzo-esque Yamaha style was. Valentino Rossi was never a Lorenzo-esque rider, yet he was able to 
fight for championships on on the on the same bike um and even as recently as like 2017 2018 you think of someone like Hafi Siren jumped on the the Yamaha when was that 2018 and was scoring top 10s in his second ever race in MotoGP um and I think we can well, all Jonas Folger now yeah, as well I think we can all agree that Hafi Siren maybe wasn't one of the most talented guys that's been in MotoGP recently so it's um it, it is very strange and it's it's yeah yeah it's tough to really see where things go um, from uh, for, for Mobidelli here. I mean, he, he was fantastic at, at Portimao in 2020 and then 2021, despite all of his issues at the start of last year. Um, I think he was something like 15 seconds slower than his race time from um, a year ago. And I mean, those are like massive numbers um, to be to be talking about. It, it's just, um, yeah, you do wonder whether um, the fact that Quadraro is able to is able to extract the very most of it. It just has, um, it, it's, it's caused Yamaha not to basically try and, and make a more um, balanced package that works for everyone. So um, it, it's quite, uh, yeah, it's quite troubling really from that point of view. But uh, as long as Quartoaro is on it, you do feel that they will have a chance this year. Guys, um, you know, the team manager of Rebel KTM, Francesco Guidelta, used a word like crucial for the Jerez test, you know, which is coming up in just over a week uh, for KTM. So, you know, you'd imagine Aprilia as well looking to make significant upgrades, but the last team to have concessions and have that extra freedom when it comes to alterations to the package and the motorcycle throughout the year. But Dave, I mean, do you think we can see anything radical from Yamaha or is it just not possible with the current configuration of the M1 they have? I mean, they can't do anything about the engine. They're stuck with the engine that they've got um, until the end of the year. Uh, they might be able to find, you know, little bits here and there. Uh, they might be able to find something with the to get more grip, which would mean, you know, maybe a new swing arm, maybe uh, something with geometry, something with setup, uh, just to change a little bit, maybe even a new chassis. Um, but yeah, it, it, to me, it, they might make a small step, but they're not going to make a massive step. So they, they are a bit, uh, a bit stuck. They might make, um, things a little bit better for, for, for the other, for, certainly for the other riders, for Dovichoso and for, um, uh, and for Morbidelli. Uh, I think also Morbidelli really needs to, get his head around a few things he said you know look i need to uh, he can't even wait for the Jerez test he has to wait for fp1 uh the, to to try some things to try to improve the, the 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 setup i think it's also quite interesting listening to um you know fabio's performance in the press conference afterwards because as dave was mentioning the vizioso morbidelli have been talking about the need for rear grip and fabio was basically saying well you know like they keep talking about this rear grip thing but did you see the rear grip I had coming out of the final corner this race? Um, you know, that wasn't such an issue. Um, it's more top speed in you. That Maybe that's a, a little insight into where the, the, the kind of two priorities for for, um, for Fabio and then for the other two, um, where they lie and how those kind of views maybe differ to, to some degree as well. Um, so, so, yes, Yamaha has never traditionally been a factory that brings big, big improvements mid-season, certainly not in recent history anyway. Um, but, um, but yeah, they, 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 they certainly need to bring something just because there is no sort of guarantee that, um, that uh, you know, Fabio can go on a run. Yes, he has the potential to, and I think he's arguably the best guy out there at the moment on the MotoGP grid. But um, all it takes is a bad qualifying for another disastrous race, and that is a very, very, very fine line to be walking um, when there's 17 races still ahead. We're going to use the rear grip we have on this podcast to come to a, a small pause and take a little ad break, but we'll be right back after this. Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. This show this week talking post-Portuguese Grand Prix and right on the eve of the Jerez, goodness, I was going to say test, but also the Grand Prix. The Let me try and get the official title here. Grand Premio Red Bull de España. Um, it's been Red Bull sponsor for quite a few years now, isn't it? Even since Valentino Rossi took one of his last victories, 2000. Hey, I'm going to be wrong here, Neil, so correct me. 
2017? 16. 16. Oh, so close. There we go. Uh, yeah, there's lots to be said for preparation, having web pages open while you're doing your podcasts, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we always aim for the highest standards of professionalism here. But listen, guys, one thing I wanted to talk about after, um, you know, Porto Mao was basically where on earth do we stand with the MotoGP World Championship? I know it's fruitless and it's pointless to really sort of ruminate on where the championship's going to go this year. But it's fun, isn't it? I mean, let's bench race for a little bit. I mean, can we consider the likes of Alessia Spargaro um, and Aya Bastianini after Austin was being talked about as a world championship contender? Uh, you know, obviously had his DNF, you know, in unfortunate circumstances after I think he crashed during Saturday as well. And the Grand Prix itself was a, a real kind of another irregular event, we could say, after the rainy conditions on Friday and Saturday. You guys knowing all about that, of course, being there on the ground. Um <laughs> So do we have any kind of clearer idea? And also I want to ask, what do you both think of Alex Rins? I mean, do we have to take him seriously? I know that the answer is obviously yes, because he's in great form, but I'm just wondering what's going to happen by the time we get to Grand Prix 14, 15, 16. Uh, for, uh, you know, I, I disagree. I think um, Portimao actually cleared up a lot of things. I think we saw... Uh, a few bikes, especially the Ducatis, they sorted themselves out. Pekka Banyaya, considering that he, you know, really, well, nearly put himself out for a couple of races um, uh, in Q1 and then ended up starting from the back and then uh, crossed the line in eighth. That's a pretty spectacular result. And he, he was saying, my feeling with the bike is fantastic. Jack Miller was the same until he suddenly crashed out. He said, my feeling with the bike is fantastic. Uh, Joanne Zarco on the podium again for the second time this year. Um, that bike is getting sorted. Uh, so the Ducati is nearly there. Sure, it, you know, the, the, there's a lot of points to, I think, 38 points Peco is behind uh, Quattararo. But... We're 16 races left to go. There is a very, very long way to go. Fabio Quartararo showed that you know, on the right back, he's got the bogey tracks behind him, the Austins and the Qatars. Um, and we're going into the European section. Uh, he's not going to enjoy Barcelona. Well, he might do because he did very well at Barcelona uh, last year, apart from all the um, uh, the, the clothing shenanigans. Um, but, you know, Barcelona, Mugello is going to be different difficult in places, uh, but there's a whole bunch of tracks, you know, Assen, um, all of these tracks which are really going to play into his hands. So Quattararo is clearly a, a, a championship favourite. I think Pekka Banyaya, now that this is now that the Ducati is starting to work, he has the time to come back. Um, uh, I don't think Zarco is going to be a championship contender because he's on the Pramac bike and they keep on throwing parts at him. He's still the only rider using that front ride height device. Um, Juan Mir, the, despite being taken out by uh, uh, by Jack Miller, I thought that was a fantastic ride by him because he was really struggling with his front tyre and yet he was still almost impossible to overtake. It was clear that he was holding the others up. Um, I mean, uh, no one was going to stop Fabio Quattrara, but I don't think he would have won by, by six seconds if uh, if Mira had been had not been in the way or if he'd had a better a better front tyre. And yes, I do think Alex Rins is is a, is a genuine candidate because he's... His talent has never been in, in doubt. It's never been the issue. The issue with Alex Rins has always been, um, you know, he sort of, he, he gets distracted and he, his mind wanders off and starts playing Sabutio or something. I don't know what he's doing, but he certainly isn't racing motorbikes. Um, so yeah, I think it's getting clear. The only question mark is what happens with Honda, but we'll, we'll be talking about later on, about that later on, I think. Yeah, but Dave, I still think there's far too much randomness. I mean, you say that the Ducatis are sorted, but then you see, you know, two riders that are arguably the future of the brand in, in their racing circles and also even their hopes for 2022 both going down on this Grand Prix. So the, the, the momentum and the feeling and the vibe around, you know, Enea Bastianini and Jorge Martin from Austin has been completely removed. Johan Zarco, what are we expecting from him, you know, in Jerez and, and Montmelo and Le Mans? Is he going to go back to being the seventh, eighth place guy? Um, you know, I think you have a point about, you know, getting to Europe, getting a little bit more of a consistent feel or regular feel. But then I still think there was a lot of things being chucked into the pot here to, to muddle, muddy the waters. And for, for Rinzi, I think, um, 
you know, you've got a great, you made a great point. The talent, yes. The mentality, no. I mean, this guy has had problems building a championship campaign his whole career. So uh, while I think he's going to be an undoubted race winner and a podium contender on fleeting appearances, I just question whether he's going to be right there, like I said, in the deep part of the season, you know, when we get to the flyaways again and, and everybody's slightly feeling the length of the season. What do you reckon, Neil? Um, yeah, I think I think Rins has, has been pretty sensational this year. I mean, we have to talk about his first lap in, uh, in Portimao. That was probably the most spectacular first lap we've seen for quite some time. Um, I think he picked off 13 riders uh, coming from 23rd in the grid to uh, 10th. And uh, there was a great um, video, I think, on MotoGP's website, which uh, had a helicopter shot, basically, of the first four or five turns. And he was just extremely clever, very brave, but just extremely clever with how he placed his bike. And it was usually to the outside um, into heavy braking zones, especially into turn three. Then he could uh, basically go and pick off three or four riders there and be on the inside for turn four. Um, but it was, it was aggressive. It was precise. It was absolutely what he had to do. Um, so I think, you know, on the basis of his performances so far, Rins is, is currently in the mix for sure. Um, the, the name that interests me is whether we can start taking Alicia Spargro seriously as a challenger. Um, because, uh, this was another race where he was, uh, he was really strong, probably could have got second place had he not got, um, caught up with Ale um, Alex Marquez in the first laps. Obviously, he was a bit outspoken about uh, Alex having the temerity to pass him back after he had made a move. <laughs> you know, how dare the Honda rider uh, get in front of him um, and, and, you know, get his elbows out when uh, they're racing uh, at this MotoGP level. Um, but um, once again, um, we go to a track. I guess this is similar to Argentina in some respects. We had no dry setup time, basically. In Argentina, it was very limited. And the, the Aprilia is strong right out the box. I mean, they have a really strong base setting that um, seems to need just minor tweaks for a lace to be to be fast and um you know the tracks that are coming up um that they've mentioned Jerez, Le Mans, uh, Mugello um you know these are all tracks where a leash was within 10 seconds of the race winner in the dry I think Le Mans was the was the exception because it was a wet race um last year and we know that this is a is definitely an improved package so I can see a leash being in the mix as well when we get to Maybe not the summer break, or maybe the summer break. I'm not sure. Um, but you know, it's it, he's making this a consistent thing, and it's no longer surprising to see him up on the podium. Like Silverstone last year, it was like, oh my god, Aprilia have got back in the top three, and it's their first podium since 2000. Now it's like, okay, Aprilia are here, and we expect them to. Well, we expect him to be there. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think that's that's one name that I'm most intrigued about seeing whether he can hold on and last the distance. Uh, I mean, yeah, definitely interesting. Alicia's a really, really interesting case. Uh, sort of chatting to a few people, and it doesn't really seem like um, Aprilia are concentrating on Alicia. They're much more interested in uh, Maverick Vinales, seeing Maverick gets on. Once again, Maverick said, you know, if I if I could have qualified further forward, I would have been better. But then, uh, sort of, I suppose the answer is that you know that they all say that. Uh, first of all, he has to qualify further forward. Um, Alicia is looking really, really strong. And I think the question mark with Alish is what happens once he gets under pressure? Uh, what happens if he's, I don't know, 10 points back or five points back from the championship lead with uh, maybe three or four races to go and he's, he's in with a chance? Then I think we'll, we'll see. But that Aprilia is looking like a really complete motorcycle. It does a lot of things really, really well. Um, the, the bike is clearly competitive. You know, they're gonna, they will lose their concession in the next probably shall we say three or four races because uh, you've got to think they need one more basically one more podium any position and they lose concessions um so yeah they're not they're just not that far off they're in really really good shape do you think that Portimao accentuated the the fact that riders like you said Neil you know um, I'm sorry Dave I think it was with the Aprilia base setting um being particularly strong do you think, you know, and also because it was raining on Friday and Saturday, riders didn't have the most chance to get ready for the race. Do you think the riders that are able to maximize what they have under them, you know, really kind of excelled in, in Portugal? And that also bodes well for the upcoming races because, 
you know, you see an Aya Bastianini as well so far this year with the GP21, really getting the most out of that motorcycle. Rins with the Suzuki, you know, just needed a bit of extra speed on a bike that, you know, as we gather, hasn't changed radically from 2021. It seems that the riders that are further clued in to what they have are able to really maximize bizarre circumstances like we saw in Portugal and we could find in the next couple of races. I mean, Fabio Quartararo is like a double winner in Jerez, so that bodes well for him. I think the, the interesting thing about Portimao is the fact that we were here in October uh, and Michelin had bought exactly the same tyres. So the riders, even though they didn't have very much setup time, they didn't have a lot uh, to change, if you like. Conditions were very similar to the last year. The tyres were exactly the same. The bikes were different. Um, so that's a little bit of a change. But yeah, I mean, they didn't have a lot, of, a, a, a lot of work to do. And I think, you know, like I said, we're going to Jerez this weekend. The weather is looking really good. We're going to have three sunny, dry days, and then we're going to have a sunny, dry day of testing afterwards. Uh, I think from here on in, everyone is getting a, is getting close to a base setting. Certainly the Aprilia had a good base setting. The Suzuki had a good base setting. Um, but like I say, you know, if, if all the Ducatis are saying, you know, we basically stuck the Austin setting in and it works and, uh, and I felt great on it, then uh, it looks like everyone is is getting to that same point where uh, the, the, the thing is working. So I... I I mean, we kept on saying the season starts at uh, the season starts at Jerez, and I think it's that it's it's beyond doubt now. It's it's beyond dispute. Um, everyone seems to have everything sorted. Are you sure it starts in Jerez, Dave? I'm sure you said Portugal before, and you know, depending <laughs> on the state of your fantasy team, I think it could stretch back to Le Mans or maybe even Mugello. So uh, let me know when this season officially starts. Okay, <laughs> Valencia, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did enjoy uh, you putting this to uh, to Alation. He was like, "What? The, no, the season started in Qatar, Dave. What are you What are you talking about?" <laughs> Listen, my, um, on the subject of um, fantasy teams, uh, I'm you know it's been a disaster for me. I mean, Mia was taken out, and I swapped Mark Marquez in at the last minute because I thought, you know, there's a chance there could be a shower during warmer. There could be some kind of bizarre weather thing and you know there's nobody better in sort of changeable conditions than Mark Marquez but Neil uh, the situation well sort of Dave as well whoever wants to chip in um, the situation with you know Mark and the Hondas it's it's getting is it for me it's getting more confusing by the week rather than clearer I mean is that the sort of situation you guys see as well yeah I mean this was this was kind of my big talking point from this weekend or certainly one of them anyway was uh, was yeah the the performance of the hondas it was um it was puzzling i think you look at mark's performance and like normally there's something you take home from watching him in a race whether it's kind of riskiness or a spark or or, or some kind of crazy overtaking move and yes there was that there was a neat move on his brother um uh, turn 13 on both of the final two laps but aside from that, it was just, there, there was nothing really there. It was very subdued. You were just looking and waiting for something to happen. But at, at no point did he look really competitive. At no point did you get the impression that he was really going coming forward. Um, it was one of the very few occasions, I think aside from 2021, for obvious reasons, when he was coming back from a, a massive injury and still far from physically um, fit fully fit um you know it was one of those really rare performances where it, he just looked like another rider in the pack um and I, I you know i could count probably on the uh, the number of times I've, I've thought that about him in moto gp on one hand 2021 aside so um it was strange um and and certainly the comments coming out of honda after the race were i guess slightly disconcerting um you know we on the basis of the, the two tests that we had at Sepang and at Indonesia, we were thinking that this was a, a, a new, obviously it's a completely new bike, but it looked like it had become a more usable bike for all riders. Um, but, um, you know, Mark made some interesting comments after the race, which was obviously a, a real barb and digging the ribs at uh, Team Apollo Spargaro, where he was saying, you know, certain riders were saying this bike was fantastic and amazing during preseason. And I was always thinking, you know, during preseason, you've got all this Michelin rubber down on the tarmac and the grip is absolutely fantastic. It's ideal, but race weekends aren't like that. And normally during a race weekend, you don't have that level of grip. So are we really sure that this bike is going to perform at this level right the way through the season? Um, and certainly 
it seems that certain people in Honda are are are, are um, basically making the analysis that this is a pretty serious situation. You know, this this is not something that can be fixed overnight. So. Um, uh, yeah, I find it. I find it really quite fascinating. Um, obviously, they've tried to um, address the issues of last year's bike by sorting out the chronic lack of rear grip. Um, it's the first time, basically, that Honda has designed the bikes around this Michelin rear tire profile that was introduced in 2020, um, which offers a lot more edge grip. They try and take advantage of that, um, and by doing that, it seems as though they've lost, as Mark Marquez has said, a part of kind of typical Honda DNA, which is that strength under braking that that really good feeling with the front end of the bike which allows him to perform the kind of miraculous late braking feats that um, he's famous for and he's become known for so very strange 16 seconds off Quartararo I think is a it's a big old chunk but um, yeah you do wonder whether this is something that can be addressed soon Honda is they're really, they are in trouble and Mark's point I thought was interesting because I remember that um, uh, KTM when they were still developing the bike uh, so they stayed for the Jerez test on the Monday and then they stayed for two more days because on the Tuesday there was a Moto2 test and the Moto2 test picked up all of the Michelin rubber and uh, cleaned the track up and left uh, you know a much worse track um, to test. It was much more slippery. And so when the KTMs got back on track, it was much more of a realistic race simulation sort of thing. So this is really, uh, that I thought was a really clever approach to sort of understanding it. And that's what sort of really Honda needs to do. And what they've taken away from Mark is it's not just the, 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 the braking. It is specifically what Mark does is he makes an incredible, a, a really, really sharp V. What he's capable of doing is pivoting the, bi uh, the bike on the front uh, on the front wheel. So he brakes really late, really deep, and then flicks the bike around uh, to fire out of the corner. Um, he could do that also partly because there wasn't so much rear grip, so he could he could get the uh, the, the the bike uh, sort of flicked around and find the grip in the traction area. Um, but when you take front feeling away, then you can't do that. That's it's really sort of defanged his his main weapon. The, you know, the, the the main thing he used to to attack people and and to be fast. And I think that is a serious problem. Yeah, it's a great analysis, Neil. And also, Dave, on, on the riding style, I can remember 2019 standing on the inside of turn two at Valencia, and you can really see, you know, the way that Marcos was attacking that corner. I mean, it was a perfect illustration of that style you're talking about. But just to speak more generally about Honda guys, what do they do for their general strategy now? I mean, you can forgive Paulo Spargaro to a degree because he's still learning the motorcycle i mean it's his second year well yeah second year in the team he's had a season and a bit it's a completely new model so he has a different kind of orientation to get his head around again but then also you know we're learning rumors about lcr maybe a complete rider swap around i mean maybe hrc are saying we've made the investment to change the bike to suit the michelin tire now we need the riders maybe to to, to throw something in i mean takanakagami in his debrief was kind of hinting as much you know he was saying the bike has improved it has the potential you know we need to perform as well so it's, it's a strange situation where the riders are caught obviously they want to aim for that objective but they can't quite do it and then they have the pressure of maybe you know, external forces and, and other riders maybe taking their saddle in a contract year. So it's a little bit of a, a whirlwind at the moment. It's going to land somewhere and very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to say that uh, you asked that, what, what do they do from here? I mean, I think it's clear what they do from here. They <laughs> follow Mark Marquez's uh, wishes and, and advice and, and feedback. Um, I mean, it's what they've, what they've just done um, right the way through uh, his time in the premier class um, and um, you know at this stage he is probably well hang on Neil hang on I'll interrupt you there do you, do you again bank on Mark or do you try and, and you know find a bigger check and sign Fabio and think right okay we still need to you know be very flexible with the development of our bike because maybe we'll have a you know the next generation of star coming in um, I think uh, you, you follow Mark because he's already got a contract for the next two years after this one so you've already banked on your big star and what he can do and um you know he has shown flashes this year of of the rider we saw in 2019 uh, occasionally in 2021 
Um, he hasn't been able to do it consistently, but then you would say that that is because the bike has not been to his liking. Um, I, I'm not saying this is the best way to do it, but when you analyze the situation, recent history, I think that is what they'll do. Um, he's the guy, you know, Paul Spargo is not going to win the championship this year. None of the LCR guys are going to win the championship. That is without question. So you're going to look and listen to the main man, the man that is still, despite a really, you know, tough, bruising start to the year, only 38 points off the championship leader, comes away from Portimao actually closer to the championship lead than he was uh, after Austin. So um, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Um, I'm just saying that I think that is what they do, and I think it's pretty obvious that's what they do. Um, just another quick thing. I mean, you know, it is worth stating that um, despite there being some rather pessimistic noises coming out of the Honda camp after this race, um, it was a strange weekend. They do have a completely new bike um, for 2022. It's not like the Yamaha, which is basically the same as they had at the end of last year. You know, having morning warm-up and what a, a quick dash in, in Q2 to basically set the bike, a completely new bike up to like this pretty strange and, and challenging track. I mean, that's obviously not good preparation. So I think it's it's dangerous to make some big sweeping conclusions that Honda are really in trouble here. Um, because, you know, again, we've had a strange MotoGP weekend with weather, basically limiting dry weather running. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, there are a few, a few signs of, um, of trouble, I guess, there. Um, and, you know, someone said to me, someone from a rival team said to me or pointed out to me that, you know, had Mark not even had those issues in Austin, you know, yes, he might have won the race, but he might have won the race just like when you think of previous years when Mark is strong, he can clear off at Austin almost at will and is riding within himself. You kind of feel like if he if he wanted to, he could drop the sec uh, drop the pace by more than a second, and that that wasn't even the case even when he was completely on the limit at Austin. So that is another indicator that we're still not seeing him or the bike anywhere near their best. So um, yes, I think. Uh, some calls for concern, but um, let's maybe wait until harass to see exactly how far away they are. Well, we're going to take this moment to place a call to Alberto Pooch and advise him on HRC race strategy for the next season or two, and we'll be right back after this break. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 Glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast, the last section of this show, or we're going to kind of have a look at Jerez, a little bit of a preview, but also examine our winners and losers from the Portuguese Grand Prix. Uh, Dave, who who kind of, I asked you who stood out earlier, but who was your winner from this race? Um, my winner from this race is Ducati. Um, because, uh, you know, we've been asking, we came into this season expecting Ducati to just blow everyone away. Um, and the first couple of races, they were not blowing everyone away. They were doing very much not that. Um, and this was the first race where we had all of the, all of the Ducati sounding happy. Um, obviously there were mistakes were made, um, and it was a bit strange, uh, but, uh, I think definitely this was, this was the race where Ducati found their feet. It confirmed that the bike is good. The bike works. They can be competitive when, uh, when it's there. And I think if Pekka Banyar, if Pekka Banyar hadn't sort of, you know, tried to launch himself uh, at the moon, then uh, and it started in the front couple of rows it might have been a very different race so i i, I really think i mean it doesn't look at it on paper if you just if you just look sort of just the the, the results completely in isolation it doesn't look like it but i think this was a really really this was really the where ducati laid the base for future success i'm going to have to say uh, my winner from the weekend we've already kind of covered it, Fabio Quattararo, um, you know, Yamaha, he saved their ass again. I think, you know, the likes of the race management who were trying to plot their way through changes for the brand, the machinery, whatever else. 
Quattararo. I think also from analyzing his demeanor and his words, he's kept calm um, through the preseason test where it was clear that the Yamaha had such a disadvantage. Um, and I think this has been a huge boost for his confidence. I think, you know, coming into the next couple of races, uh, some tracks that could be very strong for that package, then, you know, we're going to see the world champion emerge, you know, maybe on a different level of performance. And I think, like we said on the um, the note show on Sunday, Dave, I mean, Quattararo has already done something we haven't seen since 2019, which is the reigning world champion win a Grand Prix. So, you know, of course, it didn't happen in 2020. Mark Marcus, they'd been injured. And then Joao Mir couldn't quite get that win for Suzuki, of course, last year. So Quattararo has been quite a long time since that win in, in, um, in Silverstone in Great Britain, but then uh, he's managed to do it again. So, um, you know, well done, Fabio. He's my winner. Neil? Uh, I think I'll have to go with uh, Alex Rins. Um, we mentioned him briefly earlier. Um, he, I think this is maybe the first time that he's ever, okay, he's, um, he's just behind Fabio because he hasn't won a race, but they're tied in points at the top of the championship. I think it's the first time Rins has ever been that close to the championship lead in MotoGP. And um, he was fantastic. I mean, everything looked pretty bad, pretty negative after qualifying. He completely messed up his strategy um, in, in Q1. Um, didn't have any comfortable feeling in the wet, then went on slick tires, had a few big rear moments and, and pitted. And basically, when he came back out, he didn't have enough time to get his rear tire up to temperature. Um, with hindsight, he should have just stayed out and got his tires going and then he would have been strong at the end of that session. But I think with a good qualifying, Rins maybe could have gone with Quartararo at the front. You know, he looked at his pace certainly later in the race before he wore his front tyre out. Um, and he was running, you know, mid-39s, just like uh, like Fabio was doing for fun. Um, if he w- wasn't able to to beat Fabio, then he was uh, he would have been, you know, a, a, I think a comfortable second. So another race where Rins was really impressive um, and this one just required a completely different skill set from what we've seen so far this year I mean we're used to him coming from the third or fourth row but not from the back row um, and uh, he handled that with um, the ex- a pretty exemplary attitude you know you think of someone uh, in the past like maybe Maverick Vinales starting this race from the back of the grid and how it was just you know a disaster um, you know Rins attacked it and um, you know kept this really good run of momentum going Neil, uh, 2021 was very damaging for Alex Rins' career to the point where we thought he's bound to be replaced in the Suzuki team. Um, are we at the point where he's completely repaired that kind of damage this season? Or, I mean, what's it going to take us to, to make a lot of people believe, right, yeah, he's completely in it? I mean, is it going to take another couple of podiums, a bit more consistency? Or, or, you know, should we get serious about him right now? I think it's probably going to take a win or two. Um, we haven't seen him win a race since, what, Silverstone? Oh, no, sorry, um, Aragon in 2020. Um, and yes, I think both of the Suzuki guys, we are expecting that step up now. Um, you know, we, we almost expected it on Sunday there with uh, with Joanne actually leading the race for the first time, I think, since Valencia in uh, 2020. That didn't quite happen. Um, so, yeah, everything's sort of in place, you feel, with, with Suzuki and their bike. Um but, um, yeah, I think it would take maybe a, a, a race win or two for, for Rins to really make us uh, take him seriously um, as a championship contender. Um, we still haven't seen that yet, but, you know, a couple of good tracks coming up from now. Dave, uh, where there are winners, there are, of course, losers. So um, who was uh, worthy of your pity from, from Portimao? I have to say that it's uh, Mark Marquez because um, he was racing against his brother, Alex Marquez, and Alex Marquez is no Mark Marquez. Um, The Honda just won't do what he needs it to do. Um, And so I I think this was one of those races, and I think it's right. Honda suffered most from at Portimao because they didn't have the data they didn't have the base set up because the bike is so completely new um, they still need to work it's going to be a long season for Mark I think uh, because he looked he looked like just another guy you know he looks more like Alex than Mark Marcus and that I think is 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 quite a concern if you're HRC it's certainly a concern if you're Mark Marcus Mark Marcus is used to winning and afterwards he looked quite sort of resigned to his fate but it was also clear that you know this is not what he was about this is this isn't why he signed up he signed up to be winning races and as it is right now he's not in that situation 
My loser is uh, quite brief, actually. I'm going to identify Brad Binder. Uh, you know, it's been a strong and consistent start for the se- to the season for the South African. Uh, I think, you know, his crash, uh, pushing for a better position and points during the race ended a sequence of almost 20 races, point, 20 point scoring finishes. So that was, a, you know, a rare occurrence for, for Brad. And um, a shame because it kind of pulled him down the standards. I think he's down to seventh now after previously being as high as second. Still a long, long way to go, of course. But, um, you know, there's, uh, if you remember in 2020 when he was a MotoGP rookie, he showed some fantastic speed at Jerez. So, um, you know, if, if things are looking promising for the KTM package right from FP1, FP2 in Spain this coming weekend, then, you know, you expect to see the 33 back up there. Neil, who was your uh, abject performer from Portugal? Uh, I guess it's a pretty obvious one to add, but I have to say Jack Miller for kind of obvious reasons. There was a, a podium there for him. You have to feel at the very least there was a, there was second place there. Um, and, uh, you know, he made a, a mistake at a pretty critical place, um, taking Don Juan Mir. That's never good. Um, but yeah, it was just a, it was a mistake. It was, um, uh, a misjudgment from him, um, going into turn one. And, um, I mean, it's a costly fall. And you look at Miller this year and it's just been up and down and up and down again. Um, and when you think like, okay, he's had a good result and he has a bit of a footing to kick on, um, then something befalls him again. Um, so there was, uh, there was a chance to get a, a second podium on the bounce going into two tracks that he won at last year, Hereth and Le Mans. Um, and, uh, he comes away with uh, a pretty costly DNF. Um, and, um, you know, this was a weekend when, um, his future was the subject of much speculation. Um, Jack was saying that there was no, uh, there was no truth to the rumors linking him to LCR Honda for next year. Um, Davide Tordossi insisted that Ducati want to keep him within their stable, but it definitely looks as though Jack will not be remaining in the factory team next year. That is going to be a straight shootout between Martin and Bastianini. Um, so yes, I would say, this is a, a kind of an incident that wouldn't make Ducati, for example, uh, reconsider that uh, reconsider that decision. So, yeah, a pretty damaging weekend for Jack, I would say. You know, for obvious reasons, Fabio Quartararo is the, the top pick on people's shopping list. But what, guys, why is there so much, you know, conjecture and talk about Jack Miller and his contract all the time? I mean, the guy must be completely exasperated by it. Is it to do with performance? Is it to do with the fact that there's, you know, promising Italian riders surrounding him? Um, is it the fact that Ducati have so many riders at their disposal? Uh, why, why is Miller always being asked about his, his, his contract status? Because he's not performing. I mean, you know, he's doing very well, but he's not Italian. If he was Italian, he would be getting away with these kind of performances, but he's not Italian. Um, he's in Ducati. He, he's expected to win. He's expected to be a championship contender. He, he's not quite a championship contender. He makes too many mistakes, and uh, that is, you know, that's putting his that's putting his future at risk. There are fast Italians. I mean, the, the problem is there are fast youngsters coming up behind him. You know, Anea Bastinini is looking good. Uh, Jorge Martin. I heard a few things that would suggest that. Um, uh, Jorge Martin might be the rider to get the second uh, uh, Ducati seat. Um, so the fact that this is the fact that this is happening, the fact that this is uh, that everyone is looking at who's going to replace him, um, that's why we're hearing about him. Because it, the thing is, like he is a very, very good. MotoGP rider. Um, he's capable of winning. He, he's shown he's capable of winning races. He's shown he's capable of podiums. Um, but the reason he's, you know, the, the reason people or Ducati are looking past him is because there are younger, faster riders. Neil, do you think it's a big Grand Prix for him next weekend considering he won at Jerez last time out? I mean, you know, if Jack Miller's finishing sixth or seventh or making a mistake and crashing out again, you know, is that really going to be the door on the hinges for him in Bologna? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's tough to say really. Like, um, you know, Ducati do like Jack. He's an honest rider. As Dave said, he's a, he's a team. He's a, he's a really good MotoGP rider. You can maybe think of him as being in the mix for a couple of MotoGP wins a year. Um, is he going to be a championship contender? I mean, that's, maybe that's uh, up for discussion. Um, but, um, you know, there is reason to believe that Ducati don't want to get rid of him. Um, you know, he could maybe slot into the, the Primax squad next year um, if uh, if Martin steps up. So um, I'm not sure. I think it would have to be a real 
disastrous run of results before Ducati are saying goodbye, Jack. Um, yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't know. But yes, it's obviously it's, an, it's, a, it's a big race weekend for him just because he's had a crash and a fairly stop-start beginning to this year. Uh, maybe it's a budget thing. You know, Ducati have to look around their pit box because if Davide Tardozzi kicks or smashes anything, you know, when Jack makes a mistake, then uh, you know they're just running out of panels to change. But um, no, I don't want to be too facetious. Uh, well, let's, let's you know take the final word here on the podcast about um, you know Jerez, guys. Uh, you know, this weekend could be the first time we see the Spanish Grand Prix back to anything like the pomp it used to enjoy. Uh, and used to make it one of the events where we'd always recommend it to people as one of the most atmospheric Grand Prix on the calendar. Are we looking forward to getting back there? I mean, it's a, it's a track that arguably every rider knows more than any other. Um, and of course, like we said, there is a special character and flavor to it. I mean, I certainly won't be missing the um, the revving motorcycles all the way through the night um, in downtown Jerez. But, uh, you know, it's still kind of a special place, isn't it? It's it's going to be interesting to see uh, what effect having Jerez and Portimao, which they're only three and a half hours apart by car, um, what it, the fact that they're back to back, what effect that is that will have? Uh, I think it might affect Portimao more than Jerez. It's going to be interesting to see how many people actually turn up to a Spanish race, whether we get back to the sort of hundreds of thousands or we're down in the sort of forty thousands, which we've tended to see after the after the pandemic. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm definitely looking forward to it just because it's lovely, and also because it's not going to rain, you know, which uh, after. <laughs> A fairly miserable weekend. Um, um, yeah, that 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 sounds like a good deal to me. And I am very much looking forward to Fabio Quartararo making it back back wins by by taking pole and uh, and victory. Neil, it's going to be a shame not to see uh, your your dear mother Susan, who's been a very kind of devoted pilgrim to Hareth over the years. Uh, she won't be coming this weekend, but she's always been there at the crack of dawn with us when we've been entering the circuit and finding her space in the grandstands. I'm sure she'll be watching on TV, though. Yes, exactly. Shout out to Suze, who's uh, currently recovering from a hip replacement at the moment um, and uh, and doing well, recovering well. She'll be watching from TV, obviously. Um but yes, it's uh, it's a great place to be. Um, I think we've, we've mentioned this before. Um, you know, Andalusia in the, the middle of spring is a is just a, a dreamy situation, a, dr- a dreamy place. Um, so yeah, looking forward to some good food, and uh, looking forward to making Dave um, watch some Champions League football tomorrow evening, which he has <laughs> promised to do. So uh, uh, yeah, there's no getting out of that, Dave. Uh, obviously, we're starting to run videos now on the Paddock Pass podcast, and Dave and I are just going to model the latest uh, fly t-shirts. We don't usually dress in a similar way all the time, just to let you know, viewers and listeners know. But uh, big thanks to Fly Racing, of course, for helping us bring the podcast to you, dear listeners. And of course, uh, to Rental Street as well. Uh, we need to bring you guys some more uh, Rental Street interview sessions. They will be coming up throughout the year, so don't worry about that. Uh, we can be reached through any questions or any comments or whatever through Twitter on Paddock Pass Pod. And of course, if you're listening through Patreon, then please send us any comments. We get those directly in our email as well, and we'll try to pay them some attention. The three of us will be together. Steve English, sadly missing because he's been on World Superbike duty. Um, he had plenty of interesting action to commentate on at Essen during the weekend and now having a few days off, so well earned for Steve. But he'll be generating uh, a podcast with uh, Gordon Ritchie, of course, you know, just dissecting some fascinating action in World Superbike. But the three of us will be together at Jerez this weekend, so we will be producing the note shows on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for our Patreon listeners. Head over to check those out, because basically we um, dissect, we look, we analyze the action that's happened that day, as well as what the riders have said in the debriefs now that Zoom has been completely abolished. So three cheers for that. Thank you to Dawn and all the teams for um, you know making media debriefs accessible to the media at the track so we can really get some better content and we can analyze things a little bit better and uh yeah produce some interesting editorial uh that's about it guys anything else to say from portugal or Jerez? i think we pretty much wrapped everything we can on this episode i'd just like to say that if you find yourself uh, wearing uh, something that is slightly similar to david emmett I, then you probably need to go and have a word with yourself <laughs> it's obligate i won't be wearing a hat neil although you know if fly racing end up sending us another box then then who knows Anything's beyond the realms of possibilities. I've always said, actually, if I was a MotoGP rider, Dave, that, um, you know, I know someone says, yeah, here's an extra half a million. You have to wear this baseball cap. Then um, I I just, I couldn't do it. I just cannot wear it. Baseball cap should not be in motorsport. Uh, The, um, I mean, you know, hat 
in a, a, somewhere, a very sunny place like uh, Jerez, it's a very, very good idea. It, it protected me against the rain, uh, Portimao. It protected me against the sun in um, uh, in Jerez. But I still think that uh, they they shouldn't be. What the riders don't need is baseball cap. They need top hats because a nice big top hat. Just think of all the sponsory sponsors you could get on there. <laughs> think of the, think of the acreage. Isn't the cowboy hat in in you know Austin? Is that enough? I mean, we don't really need to go to gallon things, do we? No, I mean, like, it's a good start, but I mean, I'm thinking, you know, a nice tool, what, maybe sort of uh, eight inches or so, that would be massive. Just think of it, you could get your entire, it would probably be worth a cool 20, you could probably pay for Fabio Quartararo's salary just on the sponsorship on it. Dave, there's no way you could handle eight inches. <laughs> we'll move on from that. <laughs> and just the comments. For, an idea for Silverstone, perhaps. Yeah, get them, get them in. Get the podium guys dressed up like Victorian gentlemen on the podium. They could get canes as well. Monocles. Isn't, isn't that, I'm sure, one of Loris Baz's worst memories of racing in MotoGP when he had to do a pre-event and dress as like Louis XIV, some sort of French aristocrat. That wasn't the, you know, the, the most uh, classiest of, of dawn at pre-event um, media duties to fulfill but um yeah well, shout out to jason thomas from fly racing if you'd like to send dave a new hat uh, to cope with the harsh temperatures we'll find in harass then of course you know fedex do a very prompt service or ups or whatever i'm not trying to plug anybody but anyway enough waffle thanks for listening guys we'll be back of course in a couple of days next week uh, to talk about the grand prix red bull de España. this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.